spell that old black magic that you weave so well. Those icy fingers up and down my spine. The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine. The same old tingle that I feel inside. And then that elevator starts its ride. And down, down, down I go round, round, round. I go like a leaf that's caught in the tide. I should stay away. What is happening? Two nights ago I was visited by a shadow. Its presence I associated gradually with El Tigre, the Brujo Mayor of Catamaco, with whom we negotiated a video interview in 1998. 
Our encounter refreshed the depths of superstition and dread I harbour. Is this my payoff, the good I secretly wishfully bought? On both occasions in the dream, I initially mistook the shadow for a corporeal presence whose immediate issue was terror. When I realised it was only a bodiless shade, the terror subsided and transformed into an exquisite and fluid dread which flowed through my being. I knew about mythical shadow presences, but I had never before experienced one. How is one to explain the difference between that which one knows about and that which one knows by experience? I began to formulate a strategy of counter-magic. Pleasure is the beginning of a contest. In dreams and elsewhere, I would wage an invisible contest with the Brujo's shadow. But what is a contest that takes place only in the minds of the contestants? Where is the spectacle? Where the performance? Where the art? Perhaps there is no other player. Perhaps it is nothing more than my own shadow, detached from its body, which I deliriously mistake for another, another with whom to compete. And here, in this doubting desire, in the invisible context with an imaginary adversary, is magic. The idea is sufficient. Once the idea of the Brujo shadow presence, mistaken or otherwise, has confronted me in my dreams, the pleasure of the contest only serves to increase the power of the presence, a presence which, I will, at the risk of my sanity and life, into existence and then into honourable defeat, for the sake of the contest, for the sake of the work. The best magic involves this celebratory fabulation of a terrifying adversary. If the choice is between the parodic intensification of illusions or willful forgetting, it must be the former. It is productive and it is delirious. Such procedures, such choices, are the kernel of the Narco-Satanicos project, the will to describe the process by which the relation between an image and its substance teases out this play of magic between terror and fabulation. And this is why the lame, absent and essential word is so relevant. True in the way a line is true, in the way a rendition of a form is true to its model, honest in the same way, veracity at the limit of technical possibility, the will to accuracy. This imperative in the rendering of thought, the thought which seeks to know itself as it conceives the senses perceiving, the thinking relation between the similar and the different, thinking what is and what is not a consequence of itself, the truth of events and the impossibility of that truth, accuracy at the limits of the possible difference between fact and fantasy, true the way a line is true, a copy is true. Integrity recalls the architect's blueprint, the technical trace of the draftsman and anatomist. The philosophical meanings of integrity are unnecessary for this recollection. Its ethical meanings seem more imperative. It is the magic word where the oppositions ordering the difference between fact and fiction, truth and illusion, real and imaginary, intersect. Mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus, hoodwinking, hoodoo, balderdash and coswallop. The voracious syllabic, semantic ordering of history and difference collapsing the subject into delirium, the space of terror and affirmation. A quest for the concrete, rational roots of our magic, for roots which devour themselves as an offensive strategy. Are you thinking this, El Tigre? Do we have weapons we can trade? The work is motivated by irreconciliation, paradoxical intent. My strategy is integral to the sense of contradiction in the act of representation. Victory or defeat are the only possible outcomes of the work. The creative act is a contest, and the best contests are those where and when the outcome is least secure and the stakes are highest. The struggle with the shadow, 
with the Brujo is a mere prelude. The only politics here will involve the strategic spin-offs of the game. Tenemos armas. We have arms. Against what? Are we still at war with control? We are at war with that which contains us. We will use the Master Builder's tools against their orders. Magic covers us. A perpetual feint. The decisive blow requires precision and integrity. Or do I confuse means with ends? Tranquillo, compañero. Están muy lejos. And always this. What happened? What is happening? What will happen? The receivers must feel what is happening. If not, control remains intact. Into the impossible possible. As true as possible. To the intersection. Los dos parecidos. No son disparecidos que estoy buscando, said Mario, as he leafed obsessively through the pages. He was looking for the image of serpents leaving the necks of beheaded Mayan ballplayers. We weren't sure why this was so important, but as usual we detected in Mario's enthusiasm something of great significance. We had been discussing the importance of La Feria, its coincidence with Semana Santa and the ancient rites of spring still recognised by the indigenous Mayan population. Mario had shown us a photograph of a frieze from one of the local pyramids, showing how an image of the god-king of this particular city had been defaced. The defacing, Mario argued, had taken place during a popular uprising at the end of a particular calendrical cycle. After the uprising, the city had been permanently abandoned. He pointed out how the image of the conejo, rabbit god, had been left intact. The conejo was god of the moon, drunkenness and fertility, the multiple one. Perhaps he conjectured the uprising had coincided with the feast day of the Conejo, that a rabbit rebellion had destroyed the city and its godly representatives. It was Semana Santa, Easter, the time of the rabbit. In the Zocalo of San Cristobal, the Judases had been hung ready for their traditional destruction on Easter Saturday. We wanted to get out on the streets to see the celebrations, but Mario seemed reluctant. It was as if he foresaw something terrible in the coincidences we pursued, the portent of an imminent rabbit uprising. And Mario, more than any other person I have met in Mexico, has the utmost respect for the potential violence of the local indigenous. He told us that when he was a student, the academic orthodoxy insisted on the innate pacifism of the Maya. They were noble savages and mystical sages, a world apart from the bloodthirsty and cannibalistic Mestecas. Mario's great-grandfather... The ex-governor of San Cristobal was not of this ilk. He had seen fit to repress any tzetzal resistance to the colonial regime by cutting their ears off en masse.
Rose was removed in 1937 to the State Asylum in Farmington, Missouri. We went out to visit her. Tom, let me show you my ward. She conducted me through it. It was too awful to believe. All those narrow little cots and hard wooden benches. Under one of those benches was crouched a young girl in a catatonic condition. Rose, what's wrong with her? My God, what a question. With no apparent discomposure, Rose replied, smiling, She's on her bad behavior today, that's all. Years later, about 1949 or 1950, Rose was living with an elderly couple on a farm near the asylum, having been so tragically becalmed by the prefrontal lobotomy which was performed in the late 30s. I arranged for her to come to Key West for a visit, accompanied by the farm lady caretaker. The disastrous visit lasted only four days, and during this time she would eat nothing in the Key West house except a can of Campbell's soup and one of chili, and only when the cans had been opened by me. At this time, Miss Rose was being afflicted by what she called crime beasts. Whatever she touched that could be shaken, she shook to remove the crime beasts from it. The house was under a terrible shadow, despite the radiant weather of the early spring in Key West. The adventure was abandoned. Rose and her cow-like companion returned to the Missouri farm. At this time, Miss Rose wrote letters almost daily. She was devoted to the small children on the farm, and especially to the canary, and each of her childish little letters contained an account of how they were doing, such as, Chi-Chi, the canary, seems happy today. Today we drove into town, and I purchased palm olive shampoo for my crown and glory. Soon I had her removed to an expensive sanitarium called Institute for Living in Hartford, Connecticut. When I visited her there a few months later, I was consternated and furious when I was informed that Miss Rose had been put into the violent ward. They told me that she had knocked an old lady down. I demanded to see Rose at once. I didn't knock her down, said Miss Rose, who never lies. I just gave her a push and she failed. She kept coming into my room at night and I couldn't sleep. I immediately told the administrator of this Institute for Living that Miss Rose was leaving. We drove for hours and hours to Stony Lodge in Osining, where she now stays. A lovely retreat, where she has a pleasant room to herself with flowered wallpaper. The lodge is on a bluff overlooking the Upper Hudson, and their grounds are beautifully landscaped. This is probably the best thing I have done with my life, well, besides a few bits of work. I gave Rose a parakeet, remembering her devotion to the canary at the farmhouse. 
and became a dear pet. Whenever I took her back to the lodge after an outing, she would say to me as she got out of the car, Tom, don't you want to come up and see my parakeet? It thrived for several years. And then, one outing, Miss Rose seemed unusually troubled, and when I got out of the car with her at the lodge, she did not invite me to visit the little bird. Are we going to see the parakeet, Rose? No, not this time, she says. It isn't very well. I insisted on going up to her room, and the parakeet was lying dead in the bottom of the cage. The nurse in attendance at Rose's lodge said it had been dead for days, but Miss Rose would not allow it to be removed. several occasions after this tragic demise, I tried to persuade her to accept another parakeet, and she has always refused. Rose has never and will never openly admit that a death has occurred. And yet, she once said, it rained last night. The dead came down with the rain. You mean the voices? Yes, of course, their voices. I'm John Cribbs, head writer for ThePinkSmoke.com. Theodore Gottlieb, professionally known as Theodore, lovingly christened Brother Theodore by Merv Griffin, had everything but his life taken away from him inside the walls of Dachau, and found it necessary upon arriving in America in May of 1940 to reinvent himself. Beginning with dramatic recitals of the work of Edgar Allan Poe, Theodore eventually incorporated his own penetrating and nihilistic worldview into a new kind of performance, which he labeled Stand-Up Tragedy. His biting, darkly humorous monologues delivered in the style of what the village voices Charles Morowitz would call a diabolical, God-intoxicated, apocalyptic messenger of null and void, a sinister, saintly, pitch-black humorist, a philosopher of gothic dimensions, a perfect guide through our individual hells, would make up the 1959 album Choral Records Presents Theodore. On the record's first track, following an introduction colored by some of his most infamous laments on the fallibility of his fellow man, Theodore segues into his adaptation of Poe's Berenice. The transition comes without an explanation that Theodore is no longer speaking as himself. Rather than identify as Aegeus, the narrator of Poe's story, he simply presents the tale of a childhood shrouded in illness and seclusion within the library chamber of the family mansion as if he were relating his own. One of Poe's most gruesome and unsettling stories 
Berenice is also one of his most deadpan and absurd, detailing a sullen, bookish recluse's obsession with his beautiful but ailing, affianced, immaculate teeth. Supposedly undertaken to explore the boundaries of bad taste in Gothic literature, Poe wrote in a letter to publisher Thomas White that the story embodied the ludicrous heightened into the grotesque, the fearful colored into the horrible, the witty exaggerated into the burlesque, the singular wrought out into the strange and mystical. It's no question, then, why Theodore would be drawn to such a story. Poe is practically describing his onstage persona, taking the guise of the mad prophet ranting on the street corner, forsaken harbinger of doom escaping exile in the shadows to present his transfixed audience terrifying truth in the style of a Catskills comic, his manic desperation would reach the fervent pitch of a wounded animal elegantly begging to be put out of its misery. While there was anger, anger at the audience, their ignorance of living in a godless universe full of pain, anger at himself at the futility of ever understanding it, there was laughter at the performer's pure commitment to the ghoulish persona, albeit one based in anguish. It was almost too obvious to file Theodore in the goofy horror category, as David Letterman did when he booked him for a Halloween show, or Joe Dante when he cast him in The Burbs, or the B-movie producers who hired him for trailer voiceovers in the 70s, but the bloody glove fit, and so Theodore wore it. His version of Berenice differs from the Poe story in interesting ways. He mirrors the backstory of the mother having died in the library, but rather than mention being born in the same room, he adds that his father also died in the library due to a tragedy. Theodore details his fascination with the titular woman's teeth much more colorfully, how they had bitten themselves into my brain and glistened like daggers in the moon. Dare I say he improves upon Poe more than a few times. Whereas Poe only hints the narrator's somnolent journey to the grave of his cousin and his grisly extraction of her captivating choppers, Theodore relates everything from the trick to the tomb to the repulsive act of violence itself. And unlike Igius in the written story, Theodore's reaction to remembering what he's done is not one of shock and revulsion, but a berserk elation, ending his recital with a blood-curdling bacchanal over the desired items he has so abhorrently procured. It makes sense that Rankin and Bass would cast him as the monomaniacal golem in their animated version of The Hobbit years later. That said, it's not the theme of obsession from Faux's story that Theodore focuses on, but the fascination with mortality. As in the story, Theodore's narrator only finds Berenice attractive in the throes of her degenerative illness and sees the contrast of the perfect white teeth to her sickly paler and emaciated form as the one feature unaffected by disease and decay, her very vitality. This beauty and ugliness becomes to him the talisman of his cousin's health and happiness, something not even dreamed of in his reality, convincing him that he'll never know contentment until he removes it from her wasting form and has it for his own. Like all Theodore's work, his Berenice possesses an undeniable musicality. It builds, it drops, it ultimately crescendos. While you can occasionally hear actual music muted in the background, it seems almost that it prefers to keep its distance from the man telling this tale. There are inspired aesthetic touches like how his voice starts to echo when he recounts moving into his lifeless vault. But the real instrument is the voice of Theodore, raspily grotesque, otherworldly waggish, dangerously hypnotic daring you to gaze into the mouth of Berenice. My earliest memories are tied closely to the library. My mother died there. There a tragedy never fully explained took the life of my father. There I spent my boyhood in books and my youth in a reverie. And the years went. 
And as a grown man, I stayed on in the home of my forebears. The realities of the world outside seemed to me like visions. And the world of dreams, little by little, became my everyday existence. I wanted to tell you about Berenice. She and I were cousins, and we grew up together in that house, but we grew differently. I was ill of health, always wrapped in gloom, while she, swift, nimble, graceful, overflowed with joy and energy. Hers were the peasant dances in the village, the ramble in the wind on the hillside, the galloping on horseback through the woods. Mine was the withdrawal, the anguish, the searching into dark things. She roamed through life, plucking its flowers, laughing, singing, unaware of the shadows on her path. Berenice, hauntress of my dreams, your image is vivid before me. Your raven black hair, your witching eyes, your fragrant lips, your lovely young form. Oh, days and places lost beyond recall. Oh, fairyland forlorn. Disease, a crippling disease befell her, took hold of her body, her mind and her habits, and in a manner most subtle, most hideous, corrupted the very essence of her being. Will you believe me? In the brightest days of her beauty, I'd never desired her as I desired her now. A sickly, frenzied passion for that wasting form began to obsess me, an incomprehensible craving. And in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage. The date of our wedding was approaching, when one afternoon I sat alone, or so I thought, in the library. From outside, like remote drums, came the monotonous beat of the rain. A gust of wind rustled through the leaves, and as I started up, she stood before me, Berenice. She spoke no word, and I... I could only stare at her. Her hair was a dank yellow and fell over her temples in snaky coils. Her face was bloodless, as if molded from wax, not solid, but melting, reshaping, moist with the dew of decay. And as I stared and stared and stared, her lips, her thin, shrunken lips, parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the dying Berenice revealed themselves to me. Would I'd never seen them, or having seen them, died. The moving of a curtain, the closing of a door, Berenice had left the room, but my mind still clung to the image of her teeth. Not one speck on their surface, not one shadow on their enamel had escaped me. They had burned themselves into my memory, they had bitten themselves into my brain. They were small, narrow, and pointed, cold and capricious. They glistened like daggers in the moon. Those teeth, those glittering teeth, those luring, quivering, beckoning, promising pearls of teeth. They were my destiny. They alone could bring me peace. Then voices. Voices, yes. A sudden chaos of voices 
murmuring, muttering, whispering voices, gibbering, jabbering voices, people coming, people going, a doctor, a priest, and from the chapel, the tolling of bells, bung, 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 Berenice was dead. Her three days passed. Again I found myself sitting in the library and as always alone. It was late at night and I knew since the setting of the sun she had been buried but of the time from then to now I had no recollection. I had just awakened from a dream. A strange dream of a deserted garden shadowy and cool with marble stones and crosses a beautiful garden, nourished on human flesh. And there is a gray mausoleum, its doors swing open, steps wind their way below. A vault, candles burning bright and motionless. A young woman in a coffin. Something. Someone is approaching, stretches out, hands, bends over the body, lips broken, grinning gums, a mouth splintered, bone bare. Was it a dream? My hands stained with blood, my fingers torn, teeth, teeth, hair, hair, teeth, hair, teeth, oh, hair, teeth, at last, hair, teeth, mine, at last, at last,
Hi, this is Robert Reinecke from the Still Watching the Skies podcast from wherethelongtailends.com. I'm so happy to return to these Halloween specials, so thank you, Zach, for inviting me. In particular, I'm glad that I'm able to bring a song that I find quite haunting and which sets the tone for the whole movie that follows. I'm speaking of O Willow Whaley from Jack Clayton's The Innocents. Before we see one image, we hear this song from a child's voice against the black screen. The song speaks of romantic love, loss, despair, and death. It's a song that's out of place being sung by a child, an innocent, but entirely fitting for the film that follows. The song will be heard in various ways throughout the film, music boxes and hummings, for instance, but it's never as direct as it is the beginning, and it sets the tone throughout. So I suggest that you close your eyes and listen to the song that follows. And try not to be too unnerved by all it implies. Happy Halloween, everyone. We lay, my love and I, beneath a weeping willow. But now alone I lie and weep beside the tree, singing, oh, willow, by the tree.
Medusa. As drear and barren as the glooms of death it lies, a windless land of livid dawns, nude to a desolate firmament, with hills that seem the gibbous bones of the mummied earth, and plains whose hollow face is riveled deep with gullies twisting like a serpent's track. The leprous touch of death is on its stones, where, for his token visible, the head is thronged upon a heap of monstrous rocks, rough-mounded like some shattered pyramid in a thwartly cloven hill ravine that seems the unhealing scar of huge Tellurian wars. Her lethal beauty crowned with twining snakes that mingle with her hair, the gorgon reigns. Her eyes are clouds wherein black lightnings lurk, yet even as men that seek the glance of life, the gazers come where, coiled and serpent-swift, those levens wait. As round an altar base her victims lie, distorted, blackened forms of postured horror smitten into stone, time caught in meshes of eternity, drawn back from dust and ruin of the years, and given to all the future of the world. The land is claimed of death. The daylight comes half-strangled in the changing webs of cloud that unseen spiders of bewildered winds weave and unweave across the lurid sun in upper air. Below, no zephyr comes to break with life the circling spell of doom. Long vapor serpents twist about the moon, and in the windy murkness of the sky, the guttering stars are wild as candle flames that near the socket. Thus the land shall be, and death shall wait, throned in Medusa's eyes, till in the irremeable webs of night the sun is snared, and the corroded moon a dust upon the gulfs, and all the stars rotted and fallen like rivets from the sky, letting the darkness down upon all things. The latest news. The situation here in New York City since the discovery of the first zombie is getting worse by the hour. There's chaos in the streets. The National Guard cannot control the situation. In every borough of the city, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, from Harlem to Queens, the zombies are taking over.
The boat can leave now. Tell the crew. Center of the outskirts. I was closely connected to a cult of vampiric murderers. My studies had led me to them and I had struck up an intellectual friendship with the leader. The cult operated under the guise of a Christian sect. Far from being anathema, the cult were considered by local outsiders as fundamentalists whose integrity to a strict moral code gave them an air of great reverence. This integrity escaped and haunted me on the bus from Katamako. It was replaced by a series of approximate terms veracity, truth, sincerity. It signifies the thing that cannot be represented on film, the distinction between the actual thing and its visual representative. Is this, or is this not, the bed on which the dream took place? The viewer will never know. The narrator might as well be lying. The responsibility for honesty, for fidelity, resides in the producer, not the receiver, for whom everything represented is as good as a lie. It is a question of remaining true to the facts, to the details, to the actual. Why should this be so important? Surely any bed would do. Why should it be this bed? Because in actuality it was a particular bed, and one has a duty to be as true to a bed as to anything else. The person who represents may be an ignoramus, a fool, a liar, but whatever integrity is, it is what matters most. The integrity of the group was awe-inspiring and terrifying to the locals, 
believers or not. Now, I knew that the upper hierarchy of this group consisted of vampiric zombies who had been dismembering and burying bodies left, right and centre on the outskirts of the town. The high priest regarded me as a kindred spirit, but an intellectual one, rather than a follower. The followers would have had me butchered at the drop of a hat had it not been for their leader's pleasure in discussing, over supper, his favourite lofty topics, ethics, philosophy, comparative religions, etc. Most of my arguments involved feints of sophistry which the Sacerdoti seemed to relish, the way a cat relishes playing with its prey. My conversations with him had the character of a chess game. We both knew there was an end to the game, that he was always going to win. I was only alive because he knew I had no desire to beat him. I only wanted to match his moves and learn. He enjoyed having such an attentive pupil. I was, in some way, a reflection of his self-worth, and would remain so as long as I refused to become a follower, so long as I continued to pose difficult counter-arguments and alternative perspectives on his truth. But I knew he lived a truth I could not, a murderous truth, and the checkmate awaiting me. The cult were planning a mass conversion, time to coincide with a major soccer tournament. They would infiltrate fans from the opposing sides and promote a violent confrontation culminating in a bloody sacrificial massacre. I had unwittingly invited friends to come and stay during the time of the tournament. The crowds were collecting in the streets waiting for the kickoff. I wasn't sure exactly when the congregation would leave the chapel and was desperately trying to think of a way to stop my friends attending a match for which they had been waiting for several months and travelled hundreds of miles to see. I wasn't even sure that the massacre was really going to take place. Rano arrived the day of the planned massacre. We chatted on a bench outside the Sacerdotis' house, my hushed tones intimating my foreboding to her, but I didn't dare tell her what was actually going on. I feared for her life and my own, but telling her what I could about what I had learned made me aware of how few people I had spoken to during my stay in the town. I knew who the followers were, and though I had never witnessed a sacrifice, I had seen people arrive in town and disappear shortly afterwards without trace. There were all sorts of elaborate stories about where the people had gone. All such stories originated from the cult. So well trusted was the Sacerdoti that even family members of the local victims were reassured by his explanations. The local police department, the chief of which was a high-ranking member of the cult, supported the integrity of the stories. As I continued talking to Ranu, I became more and more conscious of just how much I knew. It was too much. Not only would I not be able to separate myself from involvement with the cult, and thus take a share in their guilt and punishment, when or if they were exposed to the light of some other authority. But also, I would never be allowed to leave the town knowing all I did. My knowledge became a curse that by communicating would condemn the hero to my own imminent fate. I would either have to voluntarily disappear, or be disappeared. My knowing guilt I would have to live with in silence and solitude, perhaps at the edge of my grave, at the centre of the outskirts. I might let the curse circulate like vengeance.
Orisha Dream, Katamaka, 040398. I left the bed three times last night. The first time was to pee. The second was a repetition of the first, but I didn't actually leave. As I stood up, I was aware of the sheets glowing blue in the nocturnal light. I knew I was about to begin a phase of lucid dreaming. I woke, properly this time, curled up in the sheets. The next time I floated up in the air above the bed, still shrouded in the crisp cotton. I was still in the same room, but heading for a different place. I knew from past experience that this was going to be an intensive voyage. You don't start floating around your hotel room in the middle of the night unless something important is about to take place. I braced myself, relaxed, prepared for the acceleration that I knew, for whatever reason, was about to kick in. Then I was hanging upside down, staring at the Christmas tree baubles, enamoured by their splendour. These were the Christmas tree baubles, the ones we had as children, the very ones. It was like seeing them again for the first time in their vivid, tangible actuality. One in particular, the king, queen of the baubles, was bigger than the rest, most of its surface covered in that dry red powder and ringed with brittle bands of white and silver glitter. Small sections were left to reveal the brilliant red chrome beneath. The baubles turned into simple spherical heads, the heads of stick puppets, and each one the head of an Orisha hanging upside down from the tree. Their eyes and mouths were nothing more than flat blank discs. The one directly before me was purple. To the left, at a distance, was the yellow face of Oshun. I wanted to be hers, but was informed by some invisible authority that I should first consult the presence behind my left shoulder. There I found a red-headed doll. It was Ezuli Zirouge. It was not her, but the purple Orisha, who was to be my communicant. I was overawed and subjugated myself in erotic compliance. Each urge to further supplication brought the doll closer to human form. This becoming human in form was driven by the dual urge of supplication and sexual desire. As I desired her breast to stroke, her shoulders formed in curves of smoothed carved wood. I wanted to kiss her feet and the wood curved into legs. To my left sat a black man who spoke in a mildly camp manner. Well, if you are not going to do it, I better, he said. He pushed aside a small dam of soil and the water flowed down a small trench to the base of a flat wooden carving of three joined figures. The outer two, who flanked the taller central figure, wore tall brimmed hats. By now I was carrying the Orisha on my shoulders. I could feel the thickness, heat and strength of her thighs as they gripped the back of my neck. I stood up and began to carry her around the room. The other Orishas had taken form too and were being carried around the room by others. I wanted to kiss the sex of the purple Orisha, but doing so would have meant turning my head around. She asked to be put down. This was not out of ombrage. The divinity wanted my desiring veneration, since it was this that brought her into the human world. But I knew that if she dismounted, our communication would be broken. Suddenly, I was dancing frenetically with the others and the Orisha was gone. The dancing was a complex pattern of violent stamping which filled the room with an ineluctable frenzy of moving bodies. Then I was dancing alone in my empty hotel room in the middle of the night. Panicked, I ran to the door to try and break out of the dream. I ran up a flight of stairs, through a cafe and back down into my room by another staircase. The room had turned into a store, the kind you find in airports, selling trinkets, souvenirs, confectionery and luxury goods. I was looking for the Orishas again, but all I could find were four old tobacco-stained cigarette cards depicting lithographs of French sailors from the 18th and 19th centuries. On the counter was the current issue of La Monde, on its blue cover a circle of stars representing the European Union. Pablo was at the counter. I was severely distressed. 
He tried to console me. John, he said, I hear you think you're in some alternate reality, that you're not really here. Is everything okay? He was trying to help, but he was also trying to convince me that this reality was the reality. For an instant, I wondered if perhaps I had never been in the room sleeping, that that was the dreaming part. But then I thought of Manny and his plans to explode peyote-inspired reality bombs, and I said to Pablo, yes, you're right. I did think I was in another reality, because I was in another reality. Now I knew this was a risk. That could have been the real reality, in which case I was about to commit myself to perpetual delirium. I ran out of the store, and in a manner that had become common, I lunged back into the present, into my bed, the hotel room, and the nocturnal blue glow. shaking the house, yet everything was still. An impending doom, almost like this, was going to be the day the vampire found the closet the downstairs.
already reached a point where remedial control, born out of knowledge of media and their total effects on all of us, must be exerted. Drop it. We should drop it. Drop it. Drop it. Like he's... Like he's... Like he's, like he's, like he's, self, he's 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 he's self, 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 he's Outside his window, there's a pond. Like he's. Ooh, that was good. in a weird space. Can we can we do a sort of something that turns the growl and the scream into a a sort of weirdly soothing backing track? Yes. Like he's. It's like he's. I'll just play it to the end and catch us. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. 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 This is Noelle Richard. I'm a queer artist and filmmaker based in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm recording an introduction for Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, which was featured in the horror classic Silence of the Lambs. I'm not a big horror fan, but Silence of the Lambs exemplifies a turning point in trans representation in cinema. This scene with the song is a particular favorite of mine where we watch the serial killer Buffalo Bill make himself up as a woman. Throughout this film, we learned that Buffalo Bill started murdering women to make a woman's suit after being denied gender confirming surgery. While the connection the film draws between being transgender and being violent is wildly inaccurate and problematic, as a trans viewer, seeing someone on screen so desperately trying to create a body that accurately represents them just sends chills up my spine. Goodbye Horses, despite its dark and murderous connotation from this scene, becomes an unexpected moment of transcendence and gender euphoria for Buffalo Bill. Looking beyond the confines of this film, 
to me, the true horror of this scene and this character's arc isn't the murders or the skin suit, but how in his life and even in his death, he's denied being seen how he wishes to be seen. And he's recognized but rejected by those around him at every level. This scene, a private moment of validation and euphoria, is the most this trans character gets by way of recognition in their identity. And it's incomplete and ephemeral. More broadly, when this film was released in 1991, this was groundbreaking trans representation on screen. The metatextual horror of it all is that Buffalo Bill's fleeting moment of gender euphoria could only be shown through the context of his character being a serial killer and pathologized. And this pathologizing and cultural perception of transgender people as monstrous persists this day. And transgender people, much like Buffalo Bill, are frequently rejected in their identity by a voyeuristic public. For these reasons, this part of the soundtrack continues to haunt me, even now, years after I first saw the film.
I'm Dr. Alicia Cosma. I'm a film study scholar who spends a lot of time thinking about exploitation film and women, including in my most recent anthology on sexploitation filmmaker Doris Wishman and my long-term work on exploitation director Stephanie Rothman. But Halloween season always brings me back to another woman, the iconic character of Thana in Abel Ferrara's Miss 45, a film that one critic called a provocative, disreputable movie well worth seeing. Thana, who is mute, is trying to survive in 1981's hostile and unforgiving New York City. But New York doesn't make it easy. And after being raped twice in one day, Thana exacts her vengeance on the predatory men of Fear City with her 45. Tentative at first, Thana's killing spree is urged on by Joe Delia's score, which stalks the city with her, horns and saxophones erupting as her violence does. The film's climax finds Thana at a Halloween party, as Delia's track, Miss 45 Dance Party, takes over the film's soundscape. The song's repetitive chords energize the partygoers and makes it feel eminently danceable. But that same repetition numbs, and the crowd becomes a nerd to yet another man preying on our heroine. As the saxophone's ostensible chorus repeats and repeats, it bears down on the costume dancers, much like the city's misogyny and violence have borne down on Thana, wearing her thin to the bone and birthing Miss 45.
Heisman's trust, a murder ballad. We emerge like the spawn of the forest that encloses this village. As if aware of our destination, the mares draw our carriage to the clearing. Once they reach the execution platform, they halt. I tie the reins to my footrest and leap down from the driver's bench. Our carriage is a slight but ominous thing, canopied in midnight blue leather and fastened with thick iron bolts. The whole contraption appears to my eye as a grand foreboding book, one that holds fast to its secrets. I move to the back and unlatch the iron gate. The headsman climbs out from the wagon. He is looming and lanky. His arms, while thin, are sure. He is already hooded when he lumbers into view. His hood is done, and the eyes that stare through its only openings are citrine and intensely focused. We have been traveling for what feels to be a ceaseless summer, an interminable span of swelter and insects and sweating peasants. Of late, it feels that we are wayfaring to the very edge of the world. We have very nearly reached the sea. Our rituals rarely deviate, so the fact that we have not yet collected a coffin for today's victim troubles me. When I inquire about this, the headsman tells me, in due course. My duty is to tend the block, and I see to this as soon as the headsman passes me. The block is stored within the wagon. We employ it for each beheading. Its surface has been smoothed by the blood that voids out from his victims. This human grease softens the wood grain. The block now has the silken texture of a woman's thigh. The headsman stores his implement in an oblong box of stone that is lidded with a nameless tombstone. Once the headsman has inspected the scaffold for today's task, he returns to the carriage and uncaps the oblong box. The gravestone lid groans as he pushes it from its mount. Trapped air flows upward. It is heady with apple and pine, poppy and sage. On the eve of the first execution where I served as the headsman's trust, I watched him prepare entanglements of these and other flora with great care. He sewed the dank bottom of the trough with them, making a fragrant bed upon which his unwieldy axe could repose. I do not ask the headsman about this practice, though I believe that the indwelling spirits of these plants bless the weapon. Never have I witnessed the headsman burnish it, nor lean it to the whetstone. Yet the blade has lost none of its luster or its edge. A drum begins to beat. The ceremony is commencing. I could list the minutiae of these proceedings, the vengeful accusations of thievery or wart cunning, the mock trials, the prayers for the condemned, but a greater picture can be painted without such trivialities. The drum lures the villagers from their hovels and huts. 
They congregate before the platform as the guards drag out the latest woman to be convicted. She squints, for the sun undoubtedly pains her after such a long span in a windowless cell. She does not utter a sound, not even as she is guided up the scaffold steps and her head is pressed against the block. The drummer goes still, and the mob falls silent in anticipation of the headsman's song. The headsman assumes his stance, adjusts his grip on the handle of his weapon. It is customary for the headsman's trust to avert their gaze out of respect for the condemned. But something, some impelling force, inspires me to lock eyes with the woman on the block. I know the blade will fall at any moment, so I wring each detail that I can from the sight of the woman's wide, lunatic eyes. Her lips are peeled back over her misshapen teeth. She trembles, though not from fear. Her body quakes with silent, mirthful laughter. Then comes the headsman's song, the crisp flit of the axe swinging downwards, the briefest of squawks from the victim before her neck is parted, the muffled thump of the wetted iron edge sinking into the block, the gasp of the crowd. Along with its song, decapitation has its scent. It's choking the air like a swollen cloud, and it stinks of copper and mud and yeast. The head lops forward like some sluggish creature. It wobbles down into the basket. Wordlessly, the headsman reaches down and grips it by its mane. Like Perseus, he holds this morbid trophy aloft. The drained face has already assumed a ghastly shade of white. Gore dangles from the halved neck like ruby pendants. Occasionally, the heads manage to retain a wisp of their original awareness. The eyes will shift and blink in frantic confusion. The tongue may wriggle as it gropes for speech. However, this does not happen today. The headsman drops the spoil back into the basket, pushes it to the edge of the scaffold with his boot. Like crows, the villagers swoop in to grasp at the carrion. There is arguing and shoving as they slink back into the village in a messy procession. The dripping basket is held above them. Different villages put these ruined heads to different uses. Some give them a burial in alignment with their native faith. Others preserve them in brine, where they are said to become divination tools. What they do with the head is of no concern to me or the headsman. Our mission is markedly different from this. A boy named Matthias worms his way to the headless corpse. He holds up a stone bowl to the reigning neck. Not far from this village, at the hem of the forest shade, there stands a broad heath. There, the heath grass sprouts as tall as men, and even on the stillest days these blades sway under strange winds from elsewhere. Upon this heath is a cluster of standing stones. How long they have stood, no one knows. The winds that bully the heath grass also erode these stones. Occasionally, large pieces are lopped off. These are often fashioned into bowls, 
as today's villagers have done. Matthias has followed us dutifully throughout this scorching season, skillfully gathering the precious blood and then feeding it as offerings to the gods of certain hidden places that the headsman regards as sacred. Matthias wanders off, his bowl brimming. The blood will meticulously be borne to the heath and then poured upon the standing stones. Food for the power that pulses inside them. Matthias was born to serve the standing stones. He has shared this with me and the methods that his parents employed to groom him for this role. As to why I was recognized to the role of the headsman's trust, I do not know. Perhaps the headsman perceived some shift in my soul, a quickening that has transformed me alchemically into something purer than I was before. I do not sense it myself. But just before the season turned, the headsman informed me that I was no longer to collect blood offerings, I was to tend the block. Today, I am to be shown yet another step in this sprawling ritual. that you had more time? I, I think I have enough time. You've had no, I, I don't need, I don't need to, I don't think I really miss, that I missed anything or have an ambition to do it again or go back to when I was, you know, standing in front of the Art Institute of Chicago. And, uh, 
it's been fulfilling. It may be not what I was anticipating, but it was the trip that was kind of assigned me in a sense. And maybe I had a hand in determining that. In it's so vast. You know, I I can fool around with ideas like that that I'm bet weary because I I don't really know. I don't know. Is it true that we live other lives? Is it true that I've been some other? When I was much younger and I did some exploration within um, spiritualism, uh, the belief that there you can communicate with the departed souls. The reason I was drawn to spiritualism in the first place is that in their canon or their their standards or their credo, uh, they conceive of God as infinite intelligence, and that to me made the most sense of all of, of, of one way to refer to whatever it is, um, the whole. Um, but I don't know what infinite, what that really, you know, how can I grasp infinite? That's beyond my, I can't do that, I can't know what the fuck infinite is, I have no idea. So I don't know. I'm kind of stuck. See, I'm stuck in my own, my own bag of tricks. It's all taking place for me in my own head, just as it's taking place for you in your head. There is no. I don't know what reality is. The reality that we know is the reality they experience from within. Whatever is out there, is there anything out there? I don't know. There's no way to access it except through what's going on inside of you. And we assume, therefore, that whatever I'm experiencing inside me is the reality that everybody experiences, and we can't know that because no two people are experiencing the same, you know, we all have our own screen or filters in place or so the guys have been trying to figure this out. Was it Plato that was looking at the shadows on the wall? Plato's cave. Yeah, Plato's cave. So that's kind of where we're stuck at, man. And if there's a way to undo that, maybe maybe death maybe death opens the door on seeing it in a different way. Uh, maybe there's another way to. Maybe it's not vision. Maybe it's something else. What's the difference between intuition and instinct? Uh, before we had speech, I think that maybe we were intuitive or instinctual. Maybe we were able to communicate. Maybe we had ESP in the old days before they had language. Maybe guys knew what was happening because, and we've lost that through, we've acquired language and, oh, now we can think about it and write all this fancy stuff down. Uh, but maybe we've lost something. We've lost the ability to to tune into the grass, or to uh, listen to the plants, or to be with the roots that you're talking about. Uh, we intellectualize it, but we aren't, that's not the same thing as it.
Williamsburg 1996 Diary, Fragment 3 We entered the peasant's home. The girl child was close to death. The doctor cured her. It was received as a miracle. The child was mute from then and imagined to be a chosen one. Altars were lit in her room. Soon she was being visited by people in the village to seek her guidance. She was possessed of miracles. As she grew older, her attachment to the doctor grew stronger. He didn't notice until one day his embarrassment, the girl, in front of her family and the doctor's lover, began to rub her crotch over his legs as he sat drinking a cup of tea. The girl's advances were as unprovocative as they were unexpected. It seemed she believed her and the doctor were cosmically married and her power was such in the community that they believed it too. The doctor's lover looked over in horror. The doctor had no choice. In the tragic climax of the narrative, the director willed the girl not to have survived and no one to have remembered. The audience wept.
David, what's happening to you? Are you in trouble? Yes. But I don't know what sort of trouble. Do try and get it into perspective. You lost the case. But you haven't lost the world. Haven't I? I've lost the world I thought I had. The world where what you just said meant anything. Why didn't you tell me there were mysteries? David, my whole life has been about a mystery. No! You stood in that church and explained them away. Dad, I'm being, I'm being taken at some sort, sort of illness. And I, I, I don't know what to do. me about those terrible dreams you used to have as a child. You remember nothing about them. When your mother died, for a whole month before, you dreamt it. And what you dreamt My name is Zachary Batanti, and I am a contributor to the Film Jive podcast. The 1977 Australian thriller The Last Wave, directed by Peter Weir, derives its sense of horror and the weird from its protagonist, defense attorney David Burton's confrontation with the legacy of colonialism, but perhaps more significantly, how the rediscovery of this history demonstrates the poverty of the Western definition of self, the notion of I am, the realization of time outside being, rather than being in time, where Burton becomes the shadow of a man, rather than a man who produces a shadow, and thus he becomes a dream itself. The score is composed by musician Charles Wayne, who is also a shadow, with only the last wave credited to his name, and no biographical information available. His identity remains in question to this day. Nevertheless, whoever he is, Wayne conceives the film's score as a kind of inhuman incantation, evoking the film's primary visual element, rainfall, by way of electronic instrumentation accompanied by the didgeridoo, an instrument indigenous to the Aboriginal people of Northern Australia. The didgeridoo is performed using circular breathing techniques, where one breathes through the nose while exhaling through the mouth, with the desire to produce an uninterrupted, continuous tone. Evoking this continuous tone, the piece entitled The Descent reveals its presence during the film's climax, as David Gopalil's wrongfully accused Chris Lee escorts David Burton deep beneath the surface of Sydney to an ancient Aboriginal sacred cave they access by way of the sewer system, where Burton uncovers the truth behind the surreal rainstorms besieging Australia throughout the film and rediscovers his own identity across time. Wayne's piece communicates the phenomenology of the spiraling descent, the time out of jointness of the narrative, and provides the necessary texture to express that Burton's transfiguration isn't merely having an out-of-body experience, but rather becoming an out-of-experience body 
from which there is no returning. Man becomes noise, the wave of the title becomes noise, and even the music of the film becomes nothing more than noise. All must return to the abyss.
just when you thought that you were alone. Legend has it that the entrance to the secret tomb is hidden. Look, there is one way and one way only that I make mashed potatoes. Chiki. The people, if asked, wow, this plate, where is this from? And let me break it for you. That's what it looks like there. I'm 100% tattooed. It's how I am inside. That's. I'm just gonna make this super easy, super delicious apple honey tart made with apples and honey. Hello. Hello. I'm going to need you to close the window when you cook meat or. <laughs> Take notes. I'm coming for you next. We're in Bury, Lancashire, England, and we're about to visit a black pudding company. Apple's been claiming this new second-generation iPad Pro makes for a good laptop when paired with the Magic Keyboard. I leave it to Beaver Mom situation here. Oh, but that was where the Irish Prairie neck was hot. Ah, there's nothing better than a campfire and a golden, delicious marshmallow. Okay, got three eggs here. Ever had your home smell like European butter? But here it is. First edition, you can tell by the stamp there. This is, uh, yeah, I got this recently. I'm not gonna use any salt. Guess what? I'm gonna use the most amazing seaweed. Hey guys, this is Austin, and you are probably familiar with the wonderful, wonderful sound of a mechanical keyboard. Over the Jumper cables are connected. Okay, powered up, powered up, powered up. Watch out, watch out, watch out. Careful, careful, careful. Let's get it going. Here we go. Yo, what's up guys, and welcome back. Today, very special video. I would... Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my... I'm going to attempt to sit underwater for 24 hours straight. So that is about as good a grab as I can possibly make. Let me just kind of peel his little toes off there. Man. All right, buddy. Man. What is that? That thing looks like it overweighs my little ass. And this novel. Did a little puppy dog get stuck in here again? Three, two, one! <laughs> Hello and welcome to my 2020 gaming PC tutorial. Have you ever wanted to build a gaming PC? How about never getting stuck in traffic or taking your pet lion out for a ride? Keep watching as I reveal many strange things you'll only see in Dubai. <laughs> this pasta is making me bump. <laughs> We're in Monopoly, Italy, a beautiful coastal town in the region of Puglia, which is the region where burrata cheese is from. Blow. Stop. Whoa, hang on. You're eating Oreos wrong. You, no, put it put it back. You can't eat Oreos wrong. You can't. Shoot, what time is it? Oh, dang. We only have 10 minutes until the concert. Okay, let me call an Uber. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We can share it. Yeah, let's share it. Booster. We need more. So this magnet is extremely strong. Mm -hmm. 
In front of me right now, we've got two of the fastest smartphones on the planet. So we're gonna start with the extreme one, and then we're gonna get to the extra. This is an absolute unit of cheese we got going on. Julie, Julie, I miss you. But to stay back and write on all this stupid song lyrics to my boss once because he wants to become a K-pop singer. Which Today for you, ladies and gentlemen, I have the privilege, nay, the honor, of being the first outside of NVIDIA to experience 8K gaming on this. This is no ordinary hand. This is the hand of a hand model. My name is Dennis Big. I run the security for World Wrestling, and one of our wrestlers that lives down there is missing. Okay, what's his name? Chris Benoit. Today we're gonna to be durability testing the brand new ROG3 gaming smart. Nice. Today, I'm going to show you a very strange ancient site in India, completely built underground. I had an awesome time playing with Friction, which is a new instrument by Reason Studios. It runs in the Reason Rack, which can be put inside any DAW. I was when an animal dies, that's a problem for them. But when a species becomes extinct, that's a problem for the entire world. And we're back in the studio, and here it is. Inside lies our destiny. I studied English for years, and I thought I know English. Come down, Ethan. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, the event's starting. Yeah. What the f dude? This is the all new concept i4 from BMW. Look how Como que es crema de manos porque <laughs> sabe bien mala. All right, so the pizza man's here. Open up the pizza, bro. Hey, man. Look how this look. Oh I actually, I actually dropped it on the way, and someone was squeezing by. Is this smart for us? I know. Yeah, I guess. You know what? I'm in my nuts. Stormy's cars aren't for sale, but we talked on the phone. You do have the Ferrari for sale. The biggest thing we're curious about is no offense, like, doesn't really. Welcome to another episode of Two Set Violin. And today, as you noticed already, we have two very special guests. <gasps> two set guests. In today's video, we're going to see what happens if we try to freeze dry a one pound gummy bear. You know, you can't sit too close to the fire, gotta be careful. Yeah, how about f you? Don't. 6 a.m. tomorrow? That's not a Oh no, why do they bother? You might have heard of a site called Wish. It has. You can't do it, you can't block me like that! What are you doing? You can't block me! No. What if I told you that there is a Minecraft server out there? Dr. Fauci, today you said you are not for economic lockdown. Oh, wow, girl. Uh, the tortilla is made out of thin mint. I remember the first time Intel showed me something kind of like this. It Here's your first drink. Yay! This is an artisan top quality bread for beginners. Oh. There's this website where you can pay girls to play Fortnite with you. Listen up. Y'all may not like it, but we're gonna have ourselves a fair trial. Unbelievable! That could never happen again in a minute. 
Hey, little Rikid. What do you got there, mate? What do you got there? It's my barn. Don't random things in my Japanese home. So we were stopped at the light. He came up and hit us. He took. Les amours, aujourd'hui, sacré énorme vidéo. Gentlemen, if you're in a long-term relationship, you'll be familiar with this comment. Fifteen years ago. You know, this is my ex. Gila, gila. We're gonna kill him. We're gonna kill him. What's up guys? For today's video, we're going to put to the test. You're free to leave. No, I'm not leaving my son and your- These are delicious. Have you ever thought about starting a bacon business? Cheaters never prosper, or do they? What is this look like dog penis in water? Hi, my name is Olivia Curry, and I co-host a podcast called Textual Awakening with Emma Credle. It's about genre films, and it is published on Zoom Out, which is an audiovisual film publication. When you ask a horror fan what their favorite horror movie soundtrack is, many eagerly cite Goblin's experimental and groundbreaking soundtrack for Dario Argento's Suspiria. Suspiria is a personal favorite of mine, so I'd be remiss to not agree with that. But today I want to talk about a largely unsung soundtrack from the same period of Italian horror. Riz Ortolani's soundtrack, made for the controversial film Cannibal Holocaust by Ruggiero Diodato, is out of context in stark and ironic contrast to the grotesque realism of the famous 80s found footage film. While the film is infamous for its dubious means of production, animal abuse, and practical effects, so realistic that legend has it it landed the director in court, where he infamously was required to perform a demonstration in front of a judge. This is potentially fictive, but this is the story. <laughs> For obvious reasons, the, these aspects of the film were sensationalized and evidently foreground the soundtrack, which is rarely mentioned, for obvious reasons. But Ortolani's soundtrack ranges from pastoral and folky to more dark electronic tracks and has a pervasive eeriness and almost a haunting beauty that is masterful. While the film basically introduced the found footage convention used very often in horror now and was kind of a precursor to torture porn films. It's not necessarily at all pleasurable, even though it does have its merits. But this is absolutely not the case for its soundtrack. And for those not down the rabbit hole of horror movie soundtracks yet, it's honestly a fantastic introduction so please enjoy the opening theme from cannibal holocaust by reese ortolani 